0: Welcome to Finnegan and Friends, the show about effortlessly waking up to infinite joy. I mean, I think Finnegan's Wake is
1: actually the greatest novel ever written.
2: Something that we author our own way through.
3: With Finnegan's Wake, I think everyone kind of comes to it with an expectation of what they're reading for, you know, and because they're reading for something, they always find
4: it. It's a very democratic text, as long as you're prepared to come into it and realize I won't be able to see through all the darkness here, but I will find glimmers of light.
0: The other day I had to move a decades-old TV set out of a basement. It's this huge and box-like thing. I guess it's mostly plastic and glass. I don't really know what's in it. I know it was really heavy. And as I was carrying it, I realized that I had no idea why it was so heavy. I don't even know how older TVs work. And I'm not alone. Here's a 1939 description of drunken pub goers experiencing analog TV. What you're about to hear will sound, at first, impossibly complicated, but hang on for a second. In the heliotropical naught time following a fade of transformed tough and pending its visiversion. version, A metanergic re-glow of beaming bat, the bared-board bombardment screen, if taste-fully-taught geranium satin, tends to teleframe and step up to the charge of a light barricade." That's from James Joyce's 1939 novel, Finnegan's Wake. And as you can probably tell, it's complex. Language of glowing characters, tough and bat, flits through our mind, and musical sounds of repeated consonants rhythmically dance through those words. There's a feeling here of a moment in time in which some energy beam from above transmits characters through the nothingness into the not time in this Dublin pub. It's definitely confusing, but don't you get at least some buzz from that confusion? Don't you get a feeling for its effulgence? You might not know what a sentence in Finnegan's Wake means, and you might not know how a TV works, but none of this is beyond your ability to be confused. And none of this is beyond your ability to be enchanted by your confusion and enchanted by the rhythms of your confusion and to think about what made you confused and enchanted. None of this is beyond your ability to wake up. Here's Joseph Nugent, a scholar of Finnegan's Wake.
5: I've often thought that if I were to be invited to one of these Desert Island Disc programs on the BBC and were asked what book would I bring to that island? then my answer would unhesitatingly be The Wake. I can't think of any text that offers as much possibility for infinite, all but infinite, explication. In its 600-odd pages, I think that I'd be kept busy for a very, very long time.
0: And here's Alwyn Fuere. She's an actor and director who's adapted Finnegan's Wake for the stage in her work titled River Run.
2: I'll have to say, first of all, I've never read the whole book. I don't ever intend to read the whole book. I don't see it as a kind of a a book to navigate in a linear fashion at all. I think of it a bit like the I Ching, you know, you open it somewhere and uh, you'll find something extraordinary.
0: The author of this book that's apparently impossible, but also so completely open to all of us is, again, James Joyce. He was born in Dublin in 1882, but left Ireland and wrote his major work elsewhere. He never gave up imaginatively on Ireland, though. And the proof of that is in the short stories of Dubliners from 1914, his semi-autobiographical novel Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man from 1916, the kaleidoscopic Dublin Epic Ulysses from 1922, and the ultra-kaleidoscopic Finnegans Wake from 1939. It's that ultimate effort, the wake, that concerns us here. It's, again, a tricky book. Does it have a story? Even that gets debated, though it seems there's some underlying story of a Dublin man named H.C.E., associated with the Earwicker surname, and the Ear more generally. H.C.E. is, it seems, also accused of wrongdoing in Dublin's Phoenix Park, but the book ranges beyond those problems and into the story of H.C.E.'s family, including a wife, Anne olivia Pluribel, sons, Shem and Sean, and a daughter, Issy. The perspective shifts and characters shift, and the novel closes from the perspective of Anna Olivia Pluribel, or ALP, who also merges with the River Liffey in Dublin, and with water in general. The book starts mid-sentence and ends mid-sentence. It's a book of cyclical rising and falling, of sleep and death, possibly occurring through a main character's dream across the whole text, leading to waking and revitalization. It's a book of night leading into day, and these are interrelated realms that All of us access. You already know all about the fantastical weirdness of the wake. You live with it through your own dreams, for one thing. Here's Dr. Jade Wu, a sleep specialist at Duke.
4: We're obviously unconscious when we sleep, so there's not as much of that A, B, C, D, nicely aligned, nicely one step to another kind of sequence of things. We're just sort of getting... A bunch of pieces of sensory information and emotional information kind of all jumbled together. One of the points of sleeping is to sort through those.
0: And you already know what it is to experience flowing matter and ALP's expansiveness that links to something cosmic because you've experienced water. Here's Alok Jha, a science journalist, on how our everyday water links you to the cosmos.
4: These asteroids and comets hit the Earth. All of them carry a little bit of water from the edge of the solar system. That's where the oceans that we see today, they come from. They come from payloads of water on asteroids or comets at the end of the solar system, and which arrives on our Earth about half a billion years after the Earth formed.
0: So strange stuff is nothing new to you. Our basic experiences have always been magnificently complex. In this and the next few episodes of Finnegan and Friends, we're going to follow The Wake's lead to think about those basic experiences of strangeness, of sleep. That's episode two. Of watery life, that's episode three. Of language, that's episode four. But first, let's dive into The Wake with Joseph Nugent, who leads a Finnegan's Wake reading group over Zoom now during the pandemic.
5: Uh, Beckett has a great line, and I'm sure somebody else will have quoted to you, and I don't quite know what it's not. Finnegan's Wake isn't about anything. It's just the thing itself. And to look for a plot in it, certainly in the conventional sense of what a plot meant, would be kind of foolish. But we do know that there are events being described. And the magic of Joyce is that those events, and very particularly the specific event that took place in the Phoenix Park, that it happens, that my group has been reading about over the last couple of meetings, that event is presented multiple times in multiple types of language, from multiple directions, but the reality of it never specified and and as soon as one starts reading the the, the, the book, one wants to become' of a natural curiosity to know more about this and to know more about all of these characters, so we're driven by curiosity we're driven by curiosity about the events being described that's for sure, but if we come looking for a plot, of course we're going to be disappointed that's not necessary, but there is action things are happening quite what they are i'm not sure but i'm damned if i give up trying to find out
0: we don't again have individual characters really to help us out
5: none of the characters if we can even use the word characters to talk about these people within the book because each of them has got a multiple series of identities fused in one none of these characters are individual characters. so even though we've got shem and sean even though we've got the the pair of twins Simply within the syntax of a single sentence, any of these couplings can become one.
0: But this makes it up for grabs in a good way. Here's Alwyn Fuere again.
2: One of the beautiful things that Joyce has done, I think, he's offered it as something that we author our own way through, and that is its power and the great freedom that it offers, I think.
1: Philip
0: Kitcher, a professor of philosophy at Columbia, would agree.
1: Joyce twice addresses the reader, not as dear reader, but as drear writer on one occasion and as gentle writer. It's as though he's saying to you, all right, there's all this material. There are all of these stories which will resonate with your experience. Each of us can find in it something unique for ourselves to reconstruct.
0: The novelist Joshua Cohn prompts me to try to get beyond self or my small-minded wishes.
3: I mean, I certainly don't agree with the idea that like, you know, there are many types of reading because if I did, I would be letting myself off the hook for a lot of things. But I don't think there's just one kind of reading. So I'm kind of in the middle there. There are ways in which a person who sort of knows what they want from a text reads. And there's a way in which someone who has no idea what they want from a text reads. And with Finnegan's Wake, I think everyone kind of comes to it with a, an expectation of what they're reading for, whether it's they're reading for a certain personal challenge or a certain encounter with the ultimate, you know, and because they're reading for something, they always find it. You know, we have a great ability as humans to kind of always see, find what we're looking for, not just in terms of our satisfactions, but but in terms of the symbols where none are intended, right? I think that it's very difficult to approach something like Finnegan's Wake without knowing what you want out of it. But if you can approximate that state, and I think that there are ways in which you can maybe get there, accidental ways. If you can arrive at the text without knowing what you want out of it, I think the experience is very different. I think the experience is a lot more playful. I think the experience is a lot more joy-like.
0: So how do we open ourselves to this joy? The Wake has become such a study text by scholars, by academics.
3: I mean there's no one more annoying than a than can you curse on a podcast?
0: Yeah, go for it.
3: I almost said a fucking Joyceian. I mean they they're just they're just um, unbearable people. And it's just an unbearable science or pseudoscience and it's an unbearable cult. And you know, I had to keep in mind that this had nothing to do with Joyce. I mean though, you know, you can say that he encouraged it. There are certain things that you, you shouldn't shouldn't take seriously from anyone and I think that the installation of his work in the academy and the turning it into this this kind of pseudoscience always turned me off it always felt gross from a kind of a psychobiographical standpoint it always felt secondary in the sense of you know people building fairly comfortable tenured careers based on the work of a man who really suffered and had a, a tough go of it in life and you know it wasn't the Kindest of men, apparently, but the world wasn't so kind to him. And so all of it sort of made me sick, to be honest with you. When I came to it, you know, coming from Ulysses and experience with Ulysses, that getting involved in that, in in, in Joyce's world, whether it's his day world or his night world, right, it's almost unavoidable to be in some way, hijacked by the academics and to begin speaking in their language, which is why I'm hesitant speaking now, because the last thing I wanna do is spew all of those lines, all of those cliches that you can find in any introduction to Joyce, where people will tell you it's, you know, the ultimate kind of source book of global English, where people will talk to you about, you know, the multilingual strategies employed, where people will tell you that, you know, the theory of relativity is encoded in it as if this was a text by Nostradamus. I'm so wary of speaking of something that was a personal experience in these academic terms, because frankly, so much of aesthetic experience and artistic experience, cultural experience, whatever you want to call it in life, in my life, has been questioned and tainted by this academic language. It was always a struggle for me to kind of push away The way quote-unquote serious things were spoken about and attend a little bit more deeply to my initial emotional response and i think it's the hardest with someone like joyce
0: getting beyond academic strictures is liberating but it's also easy to feel lost when you read the book i talked about this with joseph nugent
5: were you foolish enough to begin to try to read it on your own
0: that's correct yes i picked it up and uh and gave it up the first time
5: of course you did and i expect that most everybody did
0: you lead a reading group. It's now online. It's now on Zoom. I don't imagine it, it was always on Zoom. What do you notice comes alive when you read it together as opposed to in a, in a solitary way?
5: In a way, you could say that it, it would have been impossible for any single man to have written that book. And if we were to imagine him in his room in Trieste, or Zurich or wherever, writing, finding his way, I think we'd find him surrounded by different books, surrounded by texts and grabbing, pulling and pieces out of that, flinging them up in the air and watching how they fell down on the table and then rearranging them for the entertainment of the of, of the readers In that. There's a vast amount of information, far more stuff in there than Joyce himself knew, if we can actually say that, surprising though it might seem. And of course notoriously there are many books which are referred to repeatedly, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn is one of them actually, that turns up regularly that my understanding is, I don't know where this comes from, that he had never actually read himself indeed. So To imagine that any one single person actually would be able to extract anything like the amount of information that's in there out of it would be ridiculous. I mean, the value of a reading group comes in a number of forces, and one you might say, is the obvious one that comes with any book reading group, and that's to say the encouragement that comes from other people who find themselves as dumbfounded as you are in those moments of lag and those moments when we think, oh my goodness, I can't go on ahead with this, to turn around to somebody who has actually got a little bit more determination on yourself and and, and drags or pulls or pushes you on. That's a great advantage in the reading group. That's true of all reading groups. In Joyce, in a book like Finnegan's Wake, and by the way, this, I think, is true of Ulysses. I, I know it's true of Ulysses. The different places from which people are coming out of their life experience is what contributes to the knowledge of the group. The great delight for me in this is the rediscovering within myself of pieces of information that I once thought valuable, but which had been discarded. What I mean is that among Joyce scholars, and this may be true of many academics in literary departments, We started our lives very frequently thinking that really our business was the accumulation of knowledge. I know as a young person that I so keenly grabbed all these little bits of shining pieces and did that throughout my life, actually. And find myself at this uh, advanced age with bags and bags of stuff lodged somewhere in the back of my brain, stuff that I once thought sparkling diamonds. And Finnegan's wick allows me, obliges me, when... When reading it in a group to dip way back in there and to rediscover some of the things that are just dust enshrouded and to bring them out, to polish them up again and to produce them for the entertainment of those around me. And when you've got 10 or 12 people in a room doing the same sort of thing, again, as I say, going back down deep into their minds and bringing out their own favourite little gems, then that's when real pleasure emerges. I'm accused occasionally in my Ulysses class, and I'm sure somebody listening in to my Zooming the Wake group of going off tangent. But of course, Joyce's book is an invitation to go off tangent. Yes, that's what he does. He wants us to go exploring into our own minds. And the the book is an invitation to exactly that. What's
0: so trippy here is that Nugent just described reading it together in order to go deeper into one's own mind. It's a book that constantly flickers between exploring the world and internally ruminating. And to read it, it helps to accept that flickering, that flux, that play. Here's Catherine O'Callaghan, a Joycean.
4: Perhaps we feel that we need to master texts, that we need to be able to understand everything in them. We need to find a clue that will unravel everything. And it it really resists that as a reader. You really have to come to it with a sense that you may not understand everything that you encounter. And in fact, you you will be probably quite biased in terms of your own knowledge and your own culture and heritage. So somebody coming from a background where they know a lot about Indian religions or Indian rivers will find them in the text. Somebody who knows a lot about children's nursery rhymes will find them in the text. They'll pop out for them. And somebody with a a knowledge of Irish literature and the Irish revival and the arguments of the time, the cultural arguments of the time will find those. And it's a very democratic text because of that. As long as you're prepared to come into it and realize I won't be able to see through all the darkness here, but I will find glimmers of light.
0: So what sturdy ground can we stand on when reading the book? Here's Joshua Cohen.
3: I don't know that I could point to what I believe to be a submerged cogent story of a Potter familius who's a publican, who runs a you know bar basically in a rooming house and his family. I see hints of it. I see that I'm supposed to get the hope of it and I see that I'm supposed to see this er patriarch you know, in a number of different guises, and I'm also very aware that there's like a counterpointed female element, right, and daughter element to it. But I couldn't, at this remove, give you what I believe to be a book-by-book synopsis. When I think about Finnegan's Wake, I think about the episodes. Uh, I think about certain episodes, and I think about how certain episodes recur, and I have the sense of a larger series of stories told in a bar or public house of which HCE is the proprietor,
1: and it is a wake for Finnegan.
0: And who is this Finnegan, apparently from an old Irish song?
1: Tim Finnegan uh, was a builder, and he falls off a ladder, and he's taken to be dead, and there's a there's a wake, a presumably open coffin, in the middle of all the carousing and drinking, some whiskey splashes on his head, and uh, and he wakes up and he says, Do you think I was dead? You know, the song is about death and then a kind of coming back from death, and
3: that's the cycle of the book. Is Finnegan a person? Is Finnegan a, a you know, I, I, I know that Finnegan's corpse appears in the beginning of the book, but the idea is, what are the relations of these tales to the occasion of awake who is the person telling these things because hc is is largely an ear and in that sense is is also a you know a stand in for the reader and the ways in which these vignettes tend to kind of cycle around each other really do mimic the talk in a bar as it gets later and the confusion of the vignettes and the way in which certain patterns are are broken absolutely kind of seem to me to aspire to that idea of a vast storytelling occasion that's fueled by alcohol on an occasion of death.
0: And then the question, which I put to Philip Kitcher is, how does all this dreamy confusion interlink with its characters? With HCE, his son Shem associated with the pen His other son, Sean, the postman associated with relative responsibility.
1: In chapter three of part three, it's a very long chapter, Sean is apparently lying still and dead, and he is exhumed. And eventually they they release from this figure of Sean all sorts of voices. The last and deepest voice to emerge is that of HCE. It's like, you know, Tim Finnegan coming back to life again. The characters are incredibly fluid.
0: How does Joyce make new meanings out of all this? Here's Joseph Nugent.
5: Homonyms and semi-homonyms, of course, are the stuff of puns, and he absolutely seems to love those, loves those, of course. And it'll be a pun that'll work on two or three or maybe four different dimensions and in maybe two or three or four different languages, yes? And these things will be entirely coincidental. That's one of the difficulties, difficulties initially, when you're reading Finnegan's Wake, is that um, the reader expects that there's a rationality and explanation for all these things, and frequently there isn't. Joyce does things very frequently for the fun of it or because of some coincidence that was inside his own head that the rest of us have no access to whatsoever. We give up after a while imagining that we're going to make entire sense of this book. And if we were to begin it, if we're foolish enough to begin it in expectations that we're going to understand everything that's going to go on, we're going to be sorely disappointed, of course, and and people with those kinds of expectations won't get past page one.
0: Sometimes it's just very funny. The sounds themselves are funny almost in a slapstick way.
5: Slapstick plays plays a very, very big part, actually, in Joyce. And Joyce grew up, of course, in the world of slapstick, where I'm speaking to you from uh, right here in Dublin at the moment, is opposite where the Theatre Royal was, which gets many, many appearances in the book. Joyce knew slapstick and he loved the movies. And we meet even, of course, the cartoon characters whom some of your older listeners, (laughs) probably not even your older listeners can remember, Mutt and Jeff, those uh, standard cartoon characters who themselves were drawn, of course, from the uh, slapstick of the music hall. Yes, slapstick is all over the place, for sure. And now
0: Philip Kitcher on what we can do with this fun, with these surprises.
1: You don't have
5: to be, I think, a
1: scholar to read Finnegans Wake. You just have to be somebody who's willing to tolerate ambiguity and openness, and to thrive on the possibilities of doing your own reconstructive work. I mean, there is a sense in which these novels are deeply uh, wonderful because. Of the satisfactions that we get through exploring them and always finding something new, I mean, I think *Finnegans Wake* is actually the greatest novel ever written.
0: How is it better than just the internet, or that you know, than just any enormous field of data in which we explore?
1: Oh, because it's centered on issues that are really central to our lives. You know, we all make mistakes, we all fail. We all find ourselves inadequate in various ways. In Finnegan's Wake, we've got all of these episodes and anecdotes, which are highly ambiguous, that we can explore in the light of our own experiences, I think.
0: There are times when Joyce himself seems to ridicule the idea of being too scholarly.
1: Apparently, you've got this manuscript, this document, which is supposed to be the key to dissolving all the mysteries of this family. Is thoroughly mundane, there comes a wonderful moment where Joyce considers the possibilities of Freudian or Marxist interpretations of this document. So he he goes off on a riff about how, when we were young and easily Freudian, we had uh, undergone something. Then he does the the Marxist interpretation where the various uh, things referred to in the very mundane letter, turn out to be symbols of class warfare and all the rest.
0: Here's the passage in question.
1: Father Michael, about this red time of the white terror equals the old regime. And Margaret is the social revolution, while cakes mean the party funds. And dear, thank you, signifies national gratitude.
0: It's still in 2020 shocking to read a book of so much play. So I asked to Joshua Cohen, what does it mean to read a book that? doesn't foreground plot conventionally at least. I think the book lacks
3: plot in the sense of information. I mean there's so much information but it's not information that can be made continuous and cogent. But I don't think it lacks plot in the sense of momentum. I think that there are changes of pace, changes of mood, and I think that that's a different way i think of thinking about how to read it you say the word plot and plot uh, what's the difference between plot and story the difference really between plot and story in my mind is that story is the abstract out of time account but plot is the introduction of time into story's summary plot is enlisting time to animate story, or to at least distribute the aspects of story across this illimitable continuum. In that sense, which is the sense of how I think about plot, I think this book does have an enormous amount of plot because the way time is introduced and the way time is manipulated is fascinating.
0: Here's Alwyn Fuere, speaking of her adaption of The
2: Wake. I think it was probably the most Joyous, the most joyful and joyous thing I've done. It does generate something in you as you perform it. Whatever portals it opens, it's a very regenerative piece of work to do.
0: I kind of think what matters when we read Finnegan's Wake is just to stay true to that joy. Here's Joshua Cohen.
3: If you're lucky enough, I'm lucky enough to encounter something that is beautiful, that speaks to me in some way. The impact is usually so, an impact's a horrible word, but the impact is so intense that it it takes me a while, as I think it takes most people a while, to actually articulate to myself what it's done to me, you know, sort of what switches, it's flipped. That's, I think, a normal thing. You have to kind of understand why you were sort of shocked, why you were turned around. You have to kind of get the dimensions of this new world that this piece of art, you know, has opened up for you. And you have to see where you stand in relation to it and where your own thoughts kind of, uh, you know, merge with it or, or oppose it. And in that time, which is, I think, a, a, you know, a soul practice, this is like really about the development of the mind development of the self in that time, because you're naturally curious, all of these opinions and, you know, theses rush in. These are the well-considered, you know, thoughts of, generations now of of very intelligent and diligent people who have drilled down ways of speaking about this thing that, for me at least, when I first encountered it, I thought existed only for me. Such was the impact that it was so personal, you know, it's sort of inconceivable in that moment to think that other people experience the same thing. And so it becomes so easy to receive their language and use that to replace my own thinking about what this book means to me. And I think that that is in some ways what Finnegan's Wake itself is about. It's about finding a personal language, a dream language, a night language, a private language, maybe in a Wittgensteinian sense, right? Where he can talk, Joyce or HCE or the narrator is, you know, can talk independently and freely without the real, you know, before the daylight of you know, received opinion or the daylight of normal life restores him to his senses and tells him how to be.
0: Thank you for listening to Finnegan and Friends. Guests in this series are the novelist Joshua Cohen, author of Wits and Moving Kings, the actor and director Alwen Fuere, who you can see in movies like Mandy and whose stage adaptation of The Wake is called River Run, Catherine O'Callaghan, Joycean at UMass Amherst, Joseph Nugent, Joycean at Boston College and impresario behind Zoom in the Wake, which you can watch over on YouTube, Philip Kitcher, Emeritus at Columbia University, whose book on the Wake is Joyce's Kaleidoscope, Dr. Jade Wu, a sleep specialist at Duke, and Alok Jah, science journalist with The Economist and author of The Water Book, which in this case is not a euphemism for Finnegan's Wake. I'm Adam Coleman, and thanks again.